welcome back to Brojo Online. Yeah, recently I put out an email to my Brojo community about some of the elements of nice guy syndrome that you really have to face, overcome and recover from if you ever hope to have a enjoyable, confident, authentic life. I received such a positive response from that list that I've decided to do a more fuller podcast about it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, the things that you need to deal with if you want to stop being a nice guy and become confident and generous and all those other things that you've always wanted to be and always could be instead. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So I've been coaching nice guys slash people pleasers and helping them recover from this mental illness is what I think of it as, for nearly eight years now, at the time of this recording. Not to mention being in recovery myself. You know, I've been a nice guy since as long as I can remember. I started pleasing people when I was about six or seven years old as a strategy to fit in socially. And I've been in recovery, you might say, for about a decade. It was about, yeah, around my mid-twenties I realized something was wrong, and I started working on it. And it was in my late twenties where I really kind of Felt like I got my groove. I figured out who I am, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, what my core values were, how to live by them, and so on. And that's when the journey really began. That's kind of when my life really began, frankly. Everything before that seems like I was trapped in a room watching someone else pretend to be me. And now I feel like I am the person, rather than watching it. So, over the years I've learned a lot about nice guy syndrome and what's sometimes called people-pleasing syndrome. It's become my life's work, you might say. It takes a lot of different forms. Everybody's got a slightly different version of it. Everybody's got different variables and behaviors and symptoms. But there are some things that we all have in common at the core, or some things that most of us have in common at the core of it all. And that's what I'll be talking about today. So as I go through the list today, there may be some things you don't resonate with, and that's fine because you don't have to have all of them to be a nice guy or a people pleaser. But if you hear what I'm talking about and you think, man, most of this is me, then you got it. You got the syndrome, right? You've got the significant confidence problem, the mental illness that is people pleasing and nice guy syndrome. What I really want to do is not so much present the solution today, because the solution is long-term work. That's why you got to go get a coach and so on if you really want to work on this stuff. But I want you to see the face of the enemy, so to speak. I want you to know where the problem areas are in your life, what it is you need to be working on and changing if you ever hope to find out who you really are and be confident. To kind of demystify being nice, show you what it really is and where you should be focusing your energy, what changes you should be making. The first thing you've got to understand that being nice is not being nice. Okay, that's the one thing it's not. It's what it pretends to be. But what really, what nice guy syndrome people pleasing really is, is an addiction. And it's an addiction to control and comfort and emotional familiarity. Okay? What Dr. Robert Glover calls the fantasy of a smooth, problem-free life. Essentially, nice guy syndrome is this addiction to smoothness and absence of discomfort. Especially emotional discomfort in the social Uh, paradigm. So you're an addict. Emotional comfort is your drug. 
Controlling other people's emotions is how you get your drug. And you've got to start from that position. You're not a nice person. <laughs> you might be underneath it all, but that's not what's happening here when you're being nice. What you're doing is you're using niceness as a very effective manipulative strategy to create emotional comfort in yourself by creating emotional comfort in others. So, starting from there, we're going to go into the list of the various elements to this strategy, the various tactics and consequences and symptoms of it, so that you can see it for what it really is, and maybe, just maybe have a chance to do something about it, and regain the rest of your life. Because I'm telling you now, if you are a nice guy or a people pleaser, you have not truly been living, you've been missing out on life. Like I said earlier, I coach people on this. So if you listen to this podcast, you like what you hear, you want to change what's going on for you, get in touch with me, dan at brojo.org, and I'll help you take a journey that could take years and make it last a few months instead. There is no quick fix to this, and the deeper you are in, the more decades you've spent being a nice guy, the more scared you are, the longer the work is, but it took me, I think, seven years to get into recovery, and now I help people get there in sort of three to six months. That's what coaching's really about. So if you want this to go quicker than seven years, get in touch. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Dishonesty. This really is the key principle to nice guy syndrome, is secrecy around what's truly going on for you on the inside. When a nice guy hits crossroads, and he has a choice, either be honest or create emotional comfort, he chooses option B. It's not like nice guys are constantly dishonest, though some are. I certainly was high on the spectrum of like almost constantly performing and pretending. I basically was method acting. I'd created a persona I called Daniel and I was being him all the time. It was very difficult to tell how much of it was even real. And a lot of nice guys are quite strong. And others, it's just certain situations and certain people where they get uncomfortable and they decide, I'd rather be dishonest than be uncomfortable. Of all the things you could change, this is the number one. To choose uncomfortable honesty over short-term reward of people feeling good, including yourself. So somebody who's got this syndrome, when they hit a point where they think, not know, but think, that being honest will cause some sort of emotional ripple that they can't handle or don't want to handle, they reach into their little bag of lies or half-truths, or they just hide something. They kind of just do whatever it can, they can to prevent this thing coming out and rocking the boat. They, they want to present an easy goingness as much as possible, and they'll do whatever it takes. They'll compromise any element of their integrity as needed to create this effect. Now, the problem with this is, well, there's multiple problems with it. First and foremost, it shames who you are. I want you to get a picture of something. Imagine you have a child, and every time they try to speak their mind, you tell them to shut the fuck up. What's that going to do to the confidence of that child, where every time they try to express themselves, they're told to be silent and pretend to be something else? Well, if you can imagine the effect that that would have on a child, then you know the effect it's having on you when you do it to yourself. See, every time you hide what's real for you, every time you don't speak the truth, your truth, you're telling yourself to shut the fuck up. Every time you pretend to be happy when you're sad, and every time you pretend to agree when you actually disagree, and every time you keep an opinion to yourself, you're telling yourself to shut the fuck up. 
How many times a day have you been doing that? How many years have you been doing that every day? How many thousands of times have you told yourself to shut the fuck up through the act of dishonesty? You ever wonder where the not good enough story comes from? There, that's where it comes from. You telling yourself that what you believe and think and feel is not good enough to be shared. And you tell yourself this every time you engage in any form of dishonesty or secrecy. So if you ever wondered where your shame comes from, where your low confidence comes from, where your depression and anxiety comes from, look no further than everything that you hide, all the opinions and beliefs and feelings and thoughts and desires that you keep to yourself, or that you mask behind something that's the opposite. That's where all your problems come from. So before you go blaming the world and your parents and the bullies in your school and women for how you feel about yourself, first check in, how often do I tell myself to shut the fuck up? Because until you get that problem sorted, there's no point in blaming anyone else, because no one else is doing that much damage to you. Second problem with dishonesty, of course, is it causes you to live in a superficial social world. You have no real connection with other people. Nice guys often report feeling alone even when they're surrounded by friends and family. Why? Because through dishonesty you hide who you really are, which means whatever they're connected to is a performance and you know that. You're like the method actor and everybody thinks, you know, if you've ever seen an interview with an actor and maybe they're a typecast type person, like they're always the same, like they're always the bad guy in the movie, right? And you see an interview with them, you're like, oh, he's a really nice guy. It seems weird. You're like, I thought he was a bad guy. Because you've only ever seen him playing that role. What's his name? Vinnie Paul? The hard cunt from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? I mean, he comes across as a really violent, psychopathic kind of dude. He's lovely in real life. Charming. Probably wouldn't hurt a fly. Not anymore. He used to be pretty rough. But these days, he's pretty nice. As far as I know. But if you only watched his movies you'd think he's the hardest cunt on the planet, and very scary. Vinnie Paul? That's not his name. Vinnie something. Vinnie Paul. That's the drummer from Pantera, I think. Anyway. So, people are essentially in a relationship or a friendship with the persona you've created, which you know that that's what's happening. So you know that they're not really in a relationship with you. In fact, you have that imposter syndrome. You're constantly worried about getting caught being you. The real you being revealed. The performance falling apart. So this creates a loneliness. Your loneliness doesn't come from a lack of people liking you. It's coming from the fact that even the people who do like you don't really know you. And really what it comes from is you've been dishonest for so long that you don't know you. You don't even have a relationship with yourself. You're not even honest with yourself. How many times do you lie to yourself? How often do you convince yourself to believe something that you originally knew not to be true? Like when you get angry and you try to talk yourself into thinking that you shouldn't be angry. What is that? Well, it's lying to yourself about how you feel. How often do you do that? No wonder you feel alone. You don't even have a relationship inside your own mind. And thirdly, as if if all this wasn't bad enough. When you're dishonest, you build a fake reputation. So it's not just individual relationships, but your overall impression, what people think you are, becomes this burden that you have to maintain. The actor Jim Carrey talked about this, you know, he had to keep being Jim Carrey. And it wasn't even him, but he had to keep it up. He had to be this silly clown all the time. It's exhausting. 
I was the high-achieving, funny, uncaring guy. I had to keep that going. Exhausting to do it all the time, to constantly be on and telling jokes and bantering and constantly achieve highly and be perfect and constantly pretend not to care about what anybody thinks or whatever, you know. I, I had to constantly pretend and it was fucking exhausting. Plus, you can't keep it up forever. Eventually the cracks will appear in your performance and you'll get caught. I mean, that's essentially why cancel culture is so prevalent these days, is all these people have been faking it. It looks so bad when they get caught. You'll notice there are certain people who are like that. You know, there'll be certain people who are doing the same thing that the people getting cancelled are doing, but they're not getting cancelled. Why? Because they've always been like that. There is no shift in character. Think of someone like, uh, someone like Bill Burr. You know, a lot of his humour is very sexist or racist or prejudiced in some way but he's never getting cancelled because he's always been like that he's not pretending to be something he isn't if you talk to him over lunch he's going to talk like that so you can't like catch him not being him but if he was on stage you know if he was all nice and doing jokes about puppies and traffic and stuff and then you got a video of him talking the way he talks he'd get cancelled out so dishonesty, that's your main issue. If you solve that, 99% of your nice guy problems disappear. Not overnight, because you can't solve it overnight. That's why I recommend getting coaching. But dishonesty is your main problem. And the biggest lie is the one you tell yourself about how you're not dishonest. You are. We all are. And if you're a nice guy, you're even more so than most people. Especially with yourself. Moving on. Next one on the list. Covert contracts. So what's a covert contract? Well, covert as in hidden in contract as an agreement. Okay, hidden agreement. It's an agreement you have with people, but they don't know about it. It's rules that you expect them to follow, behaviors that you expect of them, a kind of karma system that they're supposed to follow of give and take. And you don't mention a word of this to them, not directly, but you hold them to account. You, you sentence them and punish them for breaching the contract. You think they should just know if you do the dishes you expect your girlfriend to say thank you you've never once told her hey i want you to say thank you when i do the dishes you've never said that you think she just should or you take a girl on a date and you pay for everything she should kiss you at the end of the night right you, you haven't said hey by the way because i'm paying for everything i expect a kiss at the end of the night you'd think that would be weird to say that everyone just knows and you might even deny it to yourself. You think, I don't expect anything, but you're disappointed at the end of the night. Well, that means you did expect something. Disappointment can only happen if you expected something. If you regularly feel disappointed in other people for how they've treated you in response to how you've treated them, then you had expectations of them. Hidden ones, more likely than not. You'll sulk. You'll punish them in various ways when they break the rules that you made up in your head, but still you don't tell them. You might sulk and cause your friend to have a you know, bad, confused mood all day, but you'll never say why it's happening. If he says what's wrong, you're like, oh, just don't worry about it. They should just know, you tell yourself. Doesn't matter if it's a romantic or platonic connection. Covert contracts are a fucking death sentence to any relationship. No, they don't just know. You see, in the world of confident people, we don't expect people people to know what we want and what the rules are we tell them we come to outward agreements there is nothing hidden 
See, a confident person, if they expect something from you, but they didn't say it, they'll be disappointed in themselves, not in you, for your behavior. If you do something that breaches the rules, they're like, fuck, I should have told him. Not, fuck, he should have known. So if you're constantly disappointed and resentful at other people not treating you fairly, not respecting you, not giving back what you give to them, well, you got to ask yourself, did I fucking directly say what I wanted? Because if not, they're off the hook. You can't expect someone to obey a law that they don't know about, right? But the reason for covert contracts is because you don't want confrontations, and that's the next point. Avoidance of confrontation, one of the most classic hallmarks of nice guys and people pleasers. One of the most common factors, there's very few nice guys and people pleasers who don't avoid confrontation. The few that don't explode. They have tantrums, they cause drama. There's a certain type of nice guy that does have a lot of confrontation, but it's very unhealthy, unproductive, relationship-ruining style of confrontation. Nice guys and people pleasers, they'll do anything to prevent or fix emotional conflict between themselves and others, or even between people they're not involved with. doesn't matter if they have to lie, they have to pretend to not care about something, pretend to agree, using humor and other things to distract or deflect from the issue. You know, you get those nice guys who banter all the time. The conversation can never get serious around them because they always make a joke. They're just constantly relieving the pressure. These guys wonder why they never get anywhere with women. It's because there is no sexual tension that ever builds up. Like, no attention, you know, no tension is ever allowed to build up. I remember when I was in university, I used to kind of annoy people sitting next to them in lecture halls because I'd just be joking about everything that was being said constantly. Because the the topic of psychology was tense and serious and some of the topics we covered were quite uncomfortable for me especially the kind of realizations i was having about myself when they talked about self-fulfilling prophecy for example and i had this flash of like holy shit all the bad stuff that happens into my life is you know i create it I, i i i'm the fucking author of my own demise you know i don't want to acknowledge that so i make jokes Without healthy confrontations, you can't have healthy relationships. One of the myths in the nice guy belief system is that confrontations are bad, that they hurt connections. And yet, nearly every nice guy, especially once they get a bit older, will have seen behind them a trail of superficial friendships or bad friendships or toxic people and bad relationships correlated very highly with avoidance of confrontation. And they don't put the pieces together like, oh, maybe that's the problem. Maybe if I had more confrontation, I wouldn't be fucking alone or with shitty people. Confrontations help connections. In fact, they are necessary to build connections. But it means getting uncomfortable. There is no nice way to have a confrontation. (laughs) There's no way where you're going to say it and everyone's going to be like, every time just, oh, wow, that is such a beautiful way to word it. I don't feel anything bad at all. See, the nice guy's constantly putting pressure on themselves. Like, if I'm going to ever bring something up, it has to go well. And of course, 9 times out of 10, or more like 99 times out of 100, they can't imagine a guaranteed way of making it go well, so they just don't have the confrontation. They'll often talk themselves out of even believing that they wanted a confrontation in the first place. So it's not that big a deal. I don't care about it that much. It's not worth it. The timing's inappropriate. Whatever. What they're really saying is, I'm scared of being uncomfortable, so I'm going to compromise what I want and what I believe in just to have a few more moments of emotional comfort. 
And in doing so, the relationship dies. You can't be real with someone without conflict. I mean, you're going to rub up wrong against people if you're being authentic. It's guaranteed. It's not actually a problem. There's only two possible outcomes from being that way. Either you push away someone who's not good for you anyway, or you create a confrontation with someone in which both of you get to know each other better and you have a stronger relationship on the other side. But the other side's a little while away. There's going to be a valley of discomfort before you get out of the valley. You know, you're going to go down before you come back up. And nice guys basically have a panic reaction whenever it starts to go down. And they smooth it out, you know, preventing and fixing and distracting. And that's why one of the only things that every single people pleaser and nice guy has in common, unhealthy relationships. The next key element, emotional suppression. There's one way to solve that pesky problem of having feelings. Stop having them. Keep it all easy going. There's some emotional range allowed. You're allowed to be slightly happy. You're allowed to be calm. In the right situation, you're allowed to be mildly frustrated and complain or a bit resentful and bitter about your victim status. But that's about all you're allowed as a nice guy. You know, nearly every nice guy that I've worked with has the same range of emotions that they're ashamed of, with some variations, but usually pretty consistent. You're not allowed to be confused. You're not allowed to be angry, you're not allowed to be sad, you're not allowed to be disgusted, you're not allowed even to be excited, definitely not allowed to be anxious or depressed. You're basically not allowed anything that might upset somebody else or make their day a little less convenient. So you squash them and you get good at it. After a while, you can kill these things in the womb, you know, they're stillborn. You can stop yourself being angry before anger even arises. You go into this like over-rationalization process where you talk yourself out of feeling something. And you combine this with avoiding anything that might provoke feelings. It's amazing how many nice guys think they want a relationship but don't see that they constantly sabotage any relationship opportunities. Because they don't actually want to get intimate with someone because that would provoke fucking emotions. So while in one part of their brain they seem to be yearning a connection with people, chasing women, for example... There's another part of their brain working carefully, long and hard, to make sure that nobody actually gets close. Now, seems like a sound strategy, doesn't it? I'll just not have feelings, and then I'll be comfortable and happy all the time. Doesn't seem to work out, though, does it? The older you get, the more you start to have pukes. This is the word given for emotional breakdowns, explosions of suppressed emotion popping out. It's a classic nice guy thing. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic and you find yourself screaming at the steering wheel. Maybe somebody breaks up with you and you find yourself suicidal. Maybe you start to engage in risk-taking behaviours out of nowhere, like how I used to go to pubs and bars and try to start fights with people, sort of subconsciously. You start to engage in all kinds of erratic behaviour. Maybe you blow your money at gambling, maybe you develop a porn addiction... You start having relationship meltdowns, and eventually you start having quite easily classifiable mental illness. Before you know it, you're having to go to the GP and ask about medication options. Emotional suppression. It's poison. It's not your fault. Somebody, when you were younger, taught you that having emotions was bad and wrong. Almost certainly that person was emotionally deficit. They were somebody who was significantly unhealthy psychologically. 
You didn't know that. You couldn't judge that for yourself. You just did what you were told. Big boys don't cry, etc. And now you're all fucked up. It's one of the biggest pieces of work. It takes a long time to work through this, but essentially you got to understand that you will not be confident until you're allowed to feel all emotions and you allow others to feel all emotions in your presence. You don't do anything to fix, prevent, or speed them along. You just have your feelings and you let others, other people have theirs. Until that happens, you're going to have confidence issues. Serious ones. Next element is taking the path of least resistance. Because of that underlying nice guy belief of a smooth problem-free life, they're always looking for the easy way out, the quick solution, rather than the right thing to do. And they're trying to solve all problems. There's no problem in a nice guy's head that doesn't have a solution. He'll often bang his head against the wall trying to solve an unsolvable issue. For example, let's say his uh, his partner is grieving over the death of her father. He'll try and solve that. Right? <laughs> Grief. You can't solve grief. But he will. He'll try to solve anything. And he'll he'll go extreme. If someone has a bad day, he'll change his whole day to solve that. Right? He won't just let them have a bad day. He'll rearrange his whole fucking calendar to prevent that bad day from continuing. And it's always a path of least resistance. Rather than being uncomfortable in someone's presence or doing the long, hard work to solve a problem, they look for the easy way out. This is why... Quite often, nice guys will quit something that they're not good at. Even though it's something they could enjoy, and it's something they would get good at if they, you know, took their time. If they're not instantly, naturally talented at it, they're like, oh, fuck this. And they just bail. It's amazing how many nice guys call themselves perfectionists, and yet they bail on stuff all the time and leave it undone and, you know, run away from it. Next element, glory hogging. This one's not so common, but certain nice guys will definitely see this. And this is essentially stealing the win. It comes from that underlying belief that, you know, no no good deed should go unrewarded. Okay, nice guys believe that, you know, anything you do to that's good should come with a reward. You've got something to collect. Recognition, praise, appreciation, love, a reciprocal act of giving in some way. There's no point in doing something unless it comes with a reward, right? And so nice guys are always making sure to collect what they're owed for being nice, but they never feel like they're getting paid enough, you know. They always feel like they're overextended. Nice guys always feel like they do more for the world than the world does for them. And so they're looking to steal back some of that which they're owed. So we can't just achieve things and get appreciation for it. We also have to top what other people are doing and steal their appreciation, you know, one of my classic ones was joke stealing, I guess you call it, or story, uh, what do we used to call it? Um, oh, story beating. That's the thing. So someone tells a funny story, I'd tell an even funnier one right afterwards and kind of steal the, the laughter. Or somebody would finish telling something funny and I'd add a bit that makes it twice as funny right at the end so I'd get the, you know, recognition for it. I'd do this subconsciously. I'd make sure that if I was involved in some sort of group project, everyone who needed to know knew that I'd, I was the one who had done the most and, and was the most responsible for the success of the group. I'd overwork myself just to make sure that if there was ever a win, there would be a special mention for Dan in there somewhere, like, couldn't have done it without him. What they didn't say is we couldn't have done it without him because he made it impossible to do it without him. He disabled the rest of the group and stole everything by making it look like he was helping. You know, so 
if you outperform other people, if you steal their jokes, if you're constantly trying to like get the rewards you feel you deserve for being nice, well, enough said really, isn't it? Next one is, I've just called it people-pleasing. Everything we're talking about is people-pleasing, but people-pleasing itself is a specific type of behavior, or should I say an intention behind a behavior. Which is essentially, if it makes someone happy, you automatically label it as the right thing to do. And vice versa, if something makes someone unhappy, you assume it must have been wrong. So people-pleasing becomes this underlying intention, like, make someone happy, regardless of the cost. doesn't matter if it creates you long-term problems, it doesn't matter if you have to sacrifice your integrity, it doesn't matter if it hurts someone else who you don't care about. If someone is made happy by your behavior, you think, yeah, that was the right thing to do. I pleased a person, and pleasing is always good, no exceptions. And then the opposite. I did something and made someone unhappy, even if my value says it's the right thing to do or my job requires it, I now have to take that back and at least question it, was it the right thing to do? Because if someone's crying, it must have been at least a bit wrong, you know? It's, where any, it's any behavior, people-pleasing is any behavior where the primary motive is to make someone else feel happy and by extension, like you more as a person. It's exhausting work, isn't it? Fucking making people happy all the time. What a job, you know? Most people don't realize that nice guys actually have multiple jobs. They think, oh, that guy's an accountant. No, he's an accountant and a people pleaser. That's another job on top of that. Oh, that girl's a mother. No, she's a mother and a people pleaser. She's got two jobs. And the people pleaser job is more full-time than anything else that anybody else does. The constant making other people happy. Even when there's no one else around, you've got to be vigilant. You get a phone call, you're like, oh shit, who's that? How do I make them happy? Just everything is just constantly tuned to like, is everyone happy? Can I make them happier? Where's the next source of happiness going to come from? How do I prevent unhappiness? It really is full time. You, You don't get a break from it. It makes you fake, disconnects you from people, and it's fucking exhausting. There's also an ironic twist. People pleasers tend to be more pleasing the further out from your inner circle they are so like a people pleaser will be nicer to a complete stranger than they are to their own child right the pleasing diminishes the closer you get to the person if you're in a tight relationship with them you're going to get the worst from them you'll get all the complaints and all the bitterness and resentment and the bad treatment that they've built up throughout the day but the people at work who don't even care about them get the lovely person and the stranger on the bus they'll get up and give them a seat i see this all the time like uh Consider my, uh, I'll just say some people close to me, is a person who treats his daughter really poorly, you know, promises her things but never delivers on them. And one of the reasons he does that is because he's so busy doing things for other people who don't even care about him and barely know him. But he's got this reputation around town that he's trying to maintain. So he'll happily let his daughter be disappointed time and time again with these broken promises. As long as the town thinks of him as a man who keeps his promises. That's a classic people pleaser right there. Next element. Approval and validation seeking. Pretty much everything a nice guy does is about validating their own existence. They want proof. I'm a good little boy. I'm a good little girl. I matter. I'm significant. And I'm good. Basically, everything eventually becomes a strategy to get that validation and approval. We've we've become obsessed with it. 
do others approve of me? It becomes a, a minute-by-minute minute consideration. You know, people-pleasers will be exhausted after a party, not because they're an introvert. A lot of people-pleasers think of themselves as introverts, but they're not introverts. They're just people-pleasers, and it's exhausting constantly assessing how much approval and validation you're getting. That's why you're wiped out at the end of the night. I used to think I was introverted, you know. I really did. But I wasn't. I was just trying really hard all the time. That's why I needed so much time alone. Because it was only when I was alone that I didn't have to put on the fucking show, you know. I was actually quite extroverted. We become so obsessed with approval from others, we can make massive life decisions based on it. I went to university for three years just to get approval from other people. Uh, You might get married to get approval. Some people will have kids to get approval. Some will move to another country. Some will, at the very least, change how they dress or buy a fancy car or something. Some significant thing that often seriously hurts their own goals and needs. Just so somebody else goes, yeah, that's the right thing to do. You know, I'm a new parent. I can't believe how much other people are shamelessly telling me what I should and shouldn't do as a parent. I'm so glad I'm not a people pleaser anymore, because fuck, that would have really fucked me up. Ten years ago, if I'd been trying to be a parent and someone was like, you shouldn't do this, you should do that, and I'd be like, fuck, how do I get approval from other people? I would have done everything that was wrong for my kid if it got approval from other people. I know I would have. I'm so glad I didn't have a kid earlier. Nowadays, I just, I don't tell them directly to fuck off every time, but basically, I do. <laughs> they would tell you I do. Basically, I, I got this, right? But a people pleaser, the one thing they don't feel is that they got this. They need other people to confirm what this is. I've I've coached a number of people through divorces. Either they've just had a divorce or I've helped them come to the conclusion that they need a divorce or whatever. And the ironic, crazy tragedy is, in every single case, they knew that their partner was a bad fit within the first three to six months. Some of these people have been married 20 years. And they knew three to six months in that it wasn't working. But because they were getting validation and approval from the other person, they stayed. Stay one more day, one more week, one more month. Sure, we'll move in together. Why not? It'll make you like me more. Sure, we'll get married without a prenup because I don't want disapproval. These people just slip into a life. People do the same thing with their career. They do well at something. They go, oh, I'll keep doing this, even though they fucking hate it. People don't realize how often you can be good at something without liking it. Most people, I think, who are successful in their careers are just doing something they're good at, not doing something they like. And they're just seeking more and more approval. It's amazing how many people I sort of help out of the corporate world. You know, to go do the thing they're really supposed to do from the beginning, the thing they actually liked and are good at, but didn't get as much approval. It's usually an artistic endeavor. But when they're good at something that makes a lot of money, they get a lot of approval and validation, and the money itself becomes validation. And they can do that for years or even decades before they go, holy shit, I've wasted my life, this isn't worth it. Next element, and this is kind of counter to the one I was talking about, playing safe to avoid disapproval or failure. Nice guys usually excel at something. We all do. All humans are usually good at something. But nice guys will tend to stay in the area that it's the thing they find easy, and naturally they're talented in it, and they don't even have to like it that much. They just have to be easily good at it if that makes sense you put them in a situation though where they're not immediately the best or doing well where they're middle of the pack and they're not excelling over their classmates or whatever 
And they're just going to have to learn it the long, slow, hard way. And they're never going to be champion of the world at it. And it's going to be hard. And even if they love the activity, they'll end up bailing on it. They usually do a big burst at the start, enough to finally realize, hey, I'm not naturally good at this, it's going to take a while, and then they just lose interest. If they don't get immediate comfort and excellence, they move on. And then, of course, they they get a pattern of this, of giving up on stuff, procrastinating on taking risks, you know, due, due to that fear of not winning on their first go. They don't start their own business, they don't ask the girl out, they don't start working on that man-boobs problem. They just don't do the thing long enough to actually get anywhere with it. And then they develop a history of failing at stuff, which further undermines their confidence in themselves. It's very hard to back yourself to try something new when you've got a long string of failing to do new things. And they don't realize that this is all a self-fulfilling prophecy. You didn't have to quit. You would have done well if you'd just taken the time and been middle of the pack and not been special and not had it easy. But you're so obsessed with emotional comfort that you bailed on the thing you actually fucking love. Tragedy. Or you'll find that they are doing something they love, but they won't take it where it needs to go. The most common element of this is an artist who refuses to try and make their art into a business. And they've got all the same excuses like, oh, if I try to make money from it, it will ruin it for me. (laughs) What a fucking stupid argument that is. If you get paid to do what you love, it makes it even better, you fucking idiot. It doesn't make it worse. Jesus Christ, what a, oh, that's got to be one of the worst arguments I've ever heard. It's like, no, I'll just, I'll just play my music for myself, I'll like it more. If I try to play it for other people, I won't like, Jesus Christ. Trust me, if other people like it too, you'll love it even more, you fucking idiot. But I feel for you. I should have started coaching five years before I did, probably. Actually, I couldn't have, because I was so underdeveloped, but took me a long time to get my coaching business off the ground because of this idea like, surely I can't do something this risky. I don't trust myself. I don't back myself. I don't have the goods. Uh, it wasn't that bad because at this stage I'd already done a lot of work on my nice guy syndrome. It wasn't quite there yet, but enough to get going. But I mean, I coached two people for six months for free. I could have got started a bit quicker than that, I think. The amount of people I meet, I'm just like, they're brilliant artists and they're working some shit job that they hate that isn't art. And I'm like, dude, entertainers and artists are some of the highest paid people on the planet. The difference between you and them is they actually went for it and were willing to put in the years required to make it work. No, you're not going to be an overnight success. No, you're not the next fucking Pearl Jam. But you could make a living from it in five to ten years. Yes, that's possible. If you're willing to fail and take risks and be uncomfortable for a significant period of time. But don't tell me that it's going to ruin it for you. You liar. Uh, Next element. Worshipping women. Obviously this one's specific to the guys. There are female people pleasers hopefully listening to this as well. But this one I see with the guys in particular. With both guys and girls is the broader concept of treating people differently based on status. Now for a For a nice guy, an attractive woman is the highest status person in the room. For others, it gets a bit more complicated. Maybe it's the wealthiest person, or the most popular, or just the most sort of alpha and dominant. And you'll find that you'll start to kind of take on a worshipping behavior towards people. You'll put them above normal human status. 
you quite often get what's called the halo effect. You'll only see what's good about them and you'll kind of extrapolate from there. Like I've got one friend, a female friend of mine, and she started dating this guy who was so obviously just a player who was just going to fuck her and break her heart. Like a guy can see this really easily when a girl's blind to it. And I said this as much, you know, she's a good friend of mine. I didn't want her to get hurt. And I said, look, this guy's just, he's a player. Like you just, he's good looking or whatever, but don't get your hopes up. And she says, no, no, but when we went on the date, he opened the door for me. I'm like, and? What is that evidence of? That his arms function? Because that's about all you can take from that. But she extrapolated that out into he's a gentleman, you know? He's this great guy. A guy who's, you know, a nice guy who's attracted to a woman will turn her into a goddess. And she might not even be that nice. Like, it's a myth that attractive women are bitches. It's total bullshit. Uh, in fact, probably a majority of the really, really beautiful people I've met are also really nice. It's actually somewhat of a somewhat of self-conscious thing that they do. Like, they're worried about being judged as bitchy, so they actually go overboard to be nice. It's actually people a few rungs down the attractive ladder. They're still kind of hot, but not really. They're the ones that tend to be the nastiest, in my opinion. Uh, anyway, what a nice girl will do is they'll see someone he's attracted to and then just project all these other qualities onto them they're also this wonderful person they get what's called one-itis this obsession with someone that they're not in a relationship with and the obsession is with a fiction they've made up a fantasy of the person they're often like blind to their flaws or their humanity their weaknesses and they see only the good stuff and then they add stuff that isn't even there it's actually a strategy to avoid getting intimate with people you just fall in love with a fantasy and that one that's never going to reciprocate, preferably. And that way you're booked out, you know? You're like, oh, there's no point in dating anyone else or pursuing anyone else because I've found the love of my life who I'm never going to actually be with. This is a quite effective way to stay single, which is actually your secret agenda. But generally just treating people differently because you think of them as higher than you. That's a real nice guy, people-pleaser thing. And of course there's the downside to it. You also judge a lot of people as lower than you. Pretty much any partner of the girl that you're dating is lower than you, right? Pretty much, uh, you know, like if you're worshipping a girl and she's got a boyfriend, you'll automatically find their boyfriend's lower than you. You'll resent her for choosing such a poor choice because you're such a prize, right? Next element, chameleon effect. It's a psychological term for fitting in with who you're with. Basically, nice guys are kind of like the clown from It, Stephen King book. You just become whatever the other person's thinking of. You know, so when I was around like tradesmen, I was kind of like rough and had a filthy sense of humor and kind of like a bit of a hard bastard, you know. When I was around women, I was kind of like the sensitive artist with all these great ideas about humanity and psychology. It was really interesting stuff. And when I was around my parents, I was the high achieving, professional, academic, clever boy. And so on. I was a different thing for whatever you almost whatever you needed me to be to like me. I got to the point where I was so good at this, I could even manage like Venn diagram multiple layers. If I'm around three different types of people, I could create a persona that fit all three of them, even if they're quite different from each other. Though that requires some mastery, you have to really work at it. You know, but I was able to do that as well. I was able to develop personas that were kind of globally pleasing if I was in a group. And then if I got you one-to-one, I'd narrow down to a specific thing that was really your cup of tea. 
Simply put, I changed who I was depending on who I was with. You match and you mimic. It's method acting. And it leaves you unsure as to who you really are. Above and beyond guaranteeing just superficial connections, you start to lose track of what is the guy that's acting. Like, I I realise I'm acting. I know I'm putting on a bit of a thing, but what am I when I'm not putting on the thing? I don't know how much of this is real and how much of it is acting. Is it all acting? Have I ever been real? One of the things that nice guys have in common that they don't often talk about is an increasing dread that they have no fucking idea who they really are. This kind of loss of self that gets worse and worse as time goes on. You know, maybe it's because you become a thing, like you become the good husband, or you become the efficient worker, or you become the the funny guy in the group. And you, and you become it so strongly, and especially if you've got multiple different roles that you play, you're, you're so busy playing these roles that there's no time left to be whatever you are. And you start to wonder if that was ever a thing. Are you real, or are you just a series of masks with no real face behind it? It's a very uh, existential, dreadful feeling. Like, the fuck is going on with my life? Who am I? Do I even know? I, I got to the point where I didn't even know what I really liked. I was so used to becoming agreeable with people, I'd just like whatever they liked, that I didn't even know where I stood on certain issues. You know, all I had was music. I knew I liked metal music and I didn't like other styles. And I clung to that like a fucking life ring in the ocean because I didn't know what I felt about pretty much anything else. Next element, perfectionism. Very ironic term, perfectionism, because most people pleasers are rarely excellent. Mediocre is what you get out of most nice guys and people pleasers. However, they'll identify as a perfectionist. They'll call themselves that. And it becomes this get-out-of-jail-free excuse to procrastinate and avoid difficult activities and tasks. The most likely outcome of being a perfectionist, average results. You're always too busy, you're never doing anything perfectly, you do everything on the task list rather than doing a few things well. You please everybody rather than focusing on a couple of key relationships, making them deep and meaningful. You do it all, and you do it all pretty shit. But because you're trying so hard, you might do it better than others. right? So I used to be a high achiever at my work, and so I'd consider myself to be doing well, but it was actually mediocre for me. I could do better. I do it now as a coach. You know, in a coaching session, I can fucking rock someone's world. Whereas it used to be in a probation officer session, I'd be just a very good probation officer, but not world rocking, because I was too busy trying to do everything. I didn't realize I had like a superpower. So I just had a good enough thing, because I was better than others. Didn't realize, well, I can actually really excel at this. I've seen it in, especially in artist-type nice guys, They do great art, but they don't do excellent art. And they could if they weren't busy trying to do everything else as well. But perfectionism is really just a word you give to the excuses to get out of uncomfortable stuff. You stop doing stuff, you procrastinate because the thing isn't going perfectly. Perfectionist doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means you want things to be perfect. And you don't accept it if it's uncomfortable. Next element, avoidance of rejection. There's a term I made up called green light syndrome. Which is the term I give to somebody who seems to passively be waiting for encouragement and approval before they take action. Before they even show an interest in taking action. 
you know, for me, it was most common in the bedroom. Like I'd never initiate sex unless I got clear go signals from the, from the woman. I was too scared of breaching the consent line that even if they were keen, I'd still hold back until they made the move because I was just so, I just didn't have the permission inside myself. I needed it from someone else. This means that the nice guy is limited to only what they can receive without risk of rejection. So they only take what is offered. Jobs, friendships, relationships, things to do, pretty much everything. They wait until somebody else comes up the, with the idea. They, they follow rather than lead. They follow passively too. The, the number of fucking nice guys that have settled in a relationship, they're married to someone that's just okay. Because the girl they wanted, they were too scared to ask out. This, most nice guys are in a relationship where the girl made the moves. And the nice guy just went, oh, can't do much better than this. Awful for both people. Both people really lose out in that situation. Next element. Nice guys are prone to manipulation, both giving and receiving. I think we've already kind of covered in detail how manipulative nice guys are. But in case you're still wondering, yes, you are very fucking manipulative. If you do things to control other people's emotions, you're manipulative. You use people-pleasing. But the funny thing is, despite being a masterful manipulator yourself as a nice guy, you're actually really vulnerable to being manipulated. It's funny, you'd think that somebody who's really manipulative is the one who's most resistant to it going the other way, you know? Like, I'm hardly going to trick some Nigerian into thinking I'm the prince that he should send money to, right? (laughs) But with nice guys, they tend to attract narcissistic types and psychopaths. They end up in relationships and friendships with very toxic, manipulative people, and they tend to be very easy to push around. You know, I used to work with criminal offenders, and... Man, they targeted the nice guys when they went to jail. You know, when they're in prison, they look for the guards who are eager to please others and they just target at them. So so nice guys have a pattern, a miserable pattern of toxic, chaotic relationships and friendships with really just ugh, people. There are exceptions. There are some nice guys who get into safe relationships with other people pleasers. And there are those who can't get into relationships at all. But the vast majority, whether it's friendships or other types of relationships, it tends to be with people who are manipulating them, using them, abusing them. Maybe not even consciously, like a classic nice guy setup is the friend zone. So the nice guy's with a girl, she's generally an alright girl. She's not like a particularly nasty or shrewd or manipulative woman. But she's getting her validation and her kicks from him. She's not really conscious that this is happening. But she keeps a nice guy around because he makes her feel good about herself. It's a form of manipulation. So she'll unconsciously kind of lead him on and keep him interested, never kind of push him away completely. She knows in some level that he's attracted, but she's quite happy for that to not go any further. The fact that she allows that to happen is manipulative. And then, of course, he's living out the fantasy. He's projected all over her, projected right onto her face and thinks of her as something else. And so he's in a relationship with this fantasy while she's just drinking from the pool of approval that he constantly fills up you know this is the kind of connections that nice guys have constantly think of uh, smithers and mr burns that's how i think of nice guys in their relationships next element anger management issues we've already talked about emotional issues in general but anger in particular nice guys a lot of them have a very dark fucked up problems with anger it's a shame really because anger is the source of courage passion assertiveness 
Anger is what you'll use to set boundaries once you get like the reins on it and don't let it get out of control. Anger will change your life. Anger was one of the greatest things I ever finally unleashed. I'm actually angry when I make podcasts like this. You might not really hear it, but this is driven by anger more than any other emotion. I'm angry that you're a people pleaser. I'm angry that you're suffering. I'm upset that you have to go through this without any support. And I'm mad at you for not doing anything about it. That's what drives me to create this content. But I spend a vast majority of my life with anger tightly wrapped up, stored away in a cage and not allowed out. And it made me very sick. You know, it made me very passive. It made me flare out with risk-taking behaviors. It uh, felt like I had this demon inside me. I was scared of it coming out. I was worried that I was a psychopath. I was worried that one day I might kill someone. You know, you wouldn't have seen any of this on my face, but I was quite scared of myself and my own capacity for rage and possibly violence. A lot of the rapists I worked with are nice guys that finally snapped sexually. There's, there's a lot of problems down the road for someone who suppresses anger. It's one of the worst things you can suppress. But because you don't know how to express it healthily, if that's a word, you keep suppressing it. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the behavior can be self-harming, like risk-taking or substance abuse. That's what you get from suppressed anger. Or it can be harmful towards others, you know, taking revenge on them, going cold on someone, uh, all the way through to abuse and violence. Another element, not always present, but pretty common, self-deprecating humor. One of the ways a nice guy likes to be funny or nice girl is to make fun of themselves, and it sounds like a joke, but it's actually real and it hurts. So one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of female stand-up comedians is this tends to be their kind of one-trick pony approach to comedy, is to be self-deprecating. I'm not saying that male comedians don't do this, and I despise the male comedians that do it as well. I don't find it funny. But it seems to be, I don't know why, it seems to be like the go-to for female comedians. They feel like they have to rag on themselves quite badly. Uh, Actually, the stand-up comedian Hannah Gadsby talks about it in her latest special, how her original work was her taking the piss out of herself. She realized how unhealthy that was, so now she takes the piss out of others. I don't find it funny either way, but at least you know she's more honest and confident now. There's a kind of a false humor, an obnoxiously ever-present banter with nice guys. Like, the guy just never takes anything seriously. We see it sometimes in the Brojo group. We'll be posting about serious stuff and commenting on it on Facebook. And there'll be the guy who just always has to take the piss in the comments. You know, I don't, I don't take that personally. I see a guy who's just uncomfortable with a serious conversation. He uses humor to constantly ease the tension. Self-deprecating humor is just a type of that tension easing strategy so whenever you hear someone making fun of themselves what you're really hearing is truly dark thoughts and feelings that they're trying to get out but they must present it as light and unimportant they must not make anyone unhappy about it it's essentially a very very watered down version of complaining they're trying to get their dark feelings out but it has to be presented in a way that makes other people feel good it makes it very difficult to get it out it's a sign that someone actually hates themselves it's as simple as that. You know, everything they're saying, they actually believe. So when you hear the guy joking about having a small dick, he thinks his dick's too small, and it really bothers him. It's not a joke. Or a guy calls himself useless and rolls his eyes and has a bit of a laugh, he thinks of himself as a loser, and it's no fucking joke. Some confident people do use self-deprecating humor, but not really. Okay, you, 
You'll be better off if you hear self-deprecating humor. Start with the assumption that the person is severely fucked up, not that they're confident. And you'll be right nine times out of ten. With confident people, it's different. You can you get a different feel from it. They're not really taking the piss out of themselves. You can see it with the stand-up comedian Louis C.K. In his earlier work, the self-deprecating humor is self-deprecating. He's like feels bad about himself. In his latest stuff, you can see he accepts himself for who he is. So like in his earlier jokes, he'll make fun of the way he looks, but you can hear like he's actually upset about it. In his later stuff, he's making fun of the way he looks, but he's actually having fun doing it. He thinks it's actually funny, and he's absolutely got no concerns about the way he looks in real life. So, that guy who makes a joke out of everything, take my word for it, he has major fucking confidence issues, even though he'll appear to be very confident, like he doesn't care about anything or take anything too seriously. He actually takes everything very seriously, and this is his like coping mechanism. He's a mess on the inside, I promise you. Next one. Obsession with sex. I guess this one's a bit harder to call because isn't everybody, you know? God, isn't sex just such a big obsession? But for nice guys in particular, sex has a element of obsession around self-worth. Like a nice guy who's a virgin will think that that's the biggest deal in his life. And maybe all guys do. So this one's a bit harder to say it's specific to nice guys and people pleasers, but sex represents the ultimate act of approval. A woman might say she likes me, she might kiss me, she might let me hug her, she might say I'm the best person she's ever met, but I'll really know she likes me if she fucks me. Everything else is doughty, you know? Like, I I remember sometimes a girl would hook up with me or kiss me at a party in high school, and later I'd find out she wasn't even really that interested in me. So I was like, okay, kissing isn't a guarantee. I'd have girls tell me like, oh, I wish I could meet a guy like you, but they didn't want to be with me, so I couldn't trust their words. And girls hug me and all sorts of other stuff that could have been signs of interest, but they were also suspicious. They would, I'd see them do it with guys they didn't actually like, or I'd see them do it just to get approval from someone or whatever. But a girl very, very rarely does a girl have sex with a guy without actually liking him. At least that's the story I told myself. So I became obsessed with sex. I'm like, that's the only way I know for sure that I'm a good guy who's attractive as a girl lets part of my body inside of her body. I really came to this very specific measurement. I can't tell a girl likes me until she takes her knickers off. Uh, And a lot of guys feel this way. Sex is their main source of confidence and the lack of it is their main source of misery. And this is where you get porn addiction comes the next best thing it's like well if i can't get the love at least i can get the feeling and also porn becomes a way to manage emotions rather than be stressed i'll just jerk it twice a day i've I've had clients that were like jerking it four or five times a day i don't even know how that's physically possible i've never done that uh but there's some that really build up a kind of tolerance i guess you'd say but yeah even though like i call it say the sexually successful nice guys i work with guys who can maintain sexual relationships and get laid and so on they tend to make a very, very big fucking deal about it. I've seen quite a few of them get into those like polygamous relationships where the relationship has this huge sexual obsession factor to it. Going away to like camps and parties where you fuck as many strangers as possible and the relationship is constantly talking about sex and constantly having sex and you know, the intimacy of the connection is like a secondary thing and they're having fun together doing other stuff is a tertiary thing. Because nice guys like sex is all. We've been raised on believing 
that sex is equally shameful and it's the best thing ever and we, it makes us very fucked up about it. We're constantly chasing it while feeling bad about it. It's, God, it's a horrible existence, isn't it? It was for me. I was just suffering for years. If I got laid, I was going on this roller coaster of like, does she like me? I think I'm awesome. Maybe I'm not. And if I wasn't getting laid, I'm a fucking loser. I should be getting laid more. I should fuck whoever likes me. Nightmare. I've got to say, it's such a relief to where I'm at now, where I'm like, yeah, it's nice, but so is going out to a restaurant. Like, it's just a nice thing to do. And I can go, you know, Lucy just had a kid. As you can imagine, our sex life took a bit of a hit. It's not completely died, but there's a recovery period. And I'm fine. You know, I'm not like panicking. I'm not feeling like I'm missing something. I'm not worried that she still loves me. I'm just freed of that now. I'm like, sex is just a physical activity. It's no different to having a dance together, really. It just feels a bit different. Next element, negative judgment of other people. So one of the ways that nice guys push back on the overwhelming shame and frustration and sadness and all the just the misery that comes from being a nice guy is to find other people who are even worse and hold yourself above them. People pleasers love to say, I'm non-judgmental, and it's one of the biggest fucking lies they tell, and they tell it to themselves. We think other people are mean, we think they're selfish and inconsiderate. <laughs> Ironically, we think of other people as being judgmental. And it's just a way to try and get some of that self-hatred out. Like, is there somebody else I can hate here? I've seen a lot of nice guys go down the uh, conspiracy theory path. It's like, who... You know, where's some people I can hate? Where's a group that I can be suspicious of and paranoid of and say they're bad people? And just the the relief that comes from distracting yourself from the self-hate. But also because you're constantly trying to figure out where you are in the hierarchy and the, the status hierarchy, you've got to constantly see who's better than me and who's worse. So you walk into a social situation like I'm better than that guy, worse than that guy, same as that guy. You do this quick little assessment to figure out where you stand, to assess the risk to whatever you think is going to happen if you're ranked low. Quite often nice guys like to befriend someone who's even worse than them. You know, it makes them feel like it's like a, a dwarf making friends with midgets, you know, like, ah, now I'm the tall one. Next element, binging. Dopamine-inducing substances and activities. All that emotional suppression, all that stress, all that exhaustion all that fear, we need relief. And it's not too long before that pressure eventually takes us to a place where we get an instant high. Alcohol and other drugs, porn, video games, even uh, just making people laugh. Like I think of stand-up comedians, especially early in their career, it's essentially an addictive behavior, like getting the laughs from the audience to try and get them through another night of depression, you know. Anything that numbs our mind or gives us a high for a few minutes or hopefully a few hours. You know, I used to use a lot of drugs. Not like I uh, couldn't function, but every weekend or every other weekend. I was at the very least, I was getting drunk every weekend. And I consider alcohol to just be a drug. It's no different to other drugs. And then I'd smoke weed, take pills, snort lines. Anything to just not be me for a fucking while, you know, just have a holiday from the fucking nightmare of being a nice guy. Problem is, of course, you don't get highs for free. You get dependency issues, it increases your stress hormones, you get withdrawals, and so you get into an addictive cycle of binging and crashing. And all of this has like an even kind of a 
exaggerated effect on your nice guyness. You just the emotions going up and down. You're trying to manage them. It's not uncommon for nice guys to be addicted to something. Usually porn, alcohol, sometimes gambling, video games. Finish this off. Last but not least, the number one problem, really, that nice guys have. Playing the victim. Now I say it's the number one problem because you cannot solve any of the others if you don't take responsibility for them. If you don't say, I'm a nice guy, I choose to be a nice guy, all the problems in my life, especially my social life, are problems I've created by being a nice guy. And it's nobody else's fault. It doesn't matter if my parents raised me wrong. It doesn't matter if I was bullied in high school. It doesn't matter if girls have been mean to me. At this moment in my life, I'm continuing to choose to be a nice guy. It doesn't matter if the strategy was originally created by a young child just trying to survive a chaotic home life. The man you are now, or woman that you are now, is choosing to continue with it. So it is definitely your fault now. It wasn't, you know, when you were seven years old and you started pleasing your dad because if you didn't, he would beat you. Right, that, that was just the best you could do at the time. You didn't know any better. That was actually a pretty sophisticated strategy for a kid. It's like, hey, I can keep everyone happy and it makes my life better. Well done. You got through the shittiness of childhood. You survived. Some didn't. Some went darker paths. You know, there's worse things than pleasing people. But now you are here. You've just finished listening to this podcast. Uh, I'm sure the logic has been undeniable. You know that you have this thing and that you're now at this moment onwards continuing to choose to do it you are no longer a victim of anything but your own choice you know most nice guys are simultaneously aware that they have these issues but yet they're very resistant to doing anything about them it frustrates me in my job more than just about anything else the amount of guys i could help and then they just procrastinate and bail on getting the coaching and then i hear from them two years later like i'm finally ready I'm like, dude, you had to do another two years of it? That must have sucked. <laughs> you didn't have to do another two years. You didn't have to do another five years. Shit, we could have fixed it then. But it comes from that bitter old story. This is not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it or there's nothing I should do about it. Other people should change. You get that with men going their own way, MGTOW. The idea that society's got it wrong and that women are the problem. It's like, bro, you're the fucking problem. If you've got a problem in your relationship, you're the problem. If you just went through a messy, expensive divorce that fucked you over, you chose to get married in those situations. You you caused that. That's all you, brother. It's all you. Every problem you currently have in your life is caused and maintained solely by you. You're either the person making the problem happen through deliberate or even subconscious behaviors, or you're failing to accept an issue because of your nice guy beliefs either way it's all on you all on you society hasn't done it to you you can drop the conspiracy theories because it's not the government holding you back it's nobody else making your life unfair other than you it's only the nice guy says you know what i'm fucking doing all of this to myself and i could change that it doesn't have to keep being this way those are the people who end up recovering some of them takes a couple of years some of them, it's an ongoing recovery that goes forever. I guess that's all of us, really. But sometimes the changes are big and instant, you know. I don't promise quick changes, but like some of the people I've worked with have gone from zero to hero within a few weeks because they just finally, you know, they go to that nothing-to-lose mentality really quickly. 
and just made massive changes. Somebody's just had a bad breakup, I can usually like do a big turnaround with them because, you know, they don't have anyone, they don't have a partner to please, they've got like nothing to lose. Look, this isn't the whole list, this podcast, but there's more to it, of course, and everybody's got a little variance, and there would have been some of the things you heard, you're like, that's not me, and that's fine, because everyone's a bit different, and there'll be some things that weren't on this list that are very big for you. But this is just a few that I think are very prevalent. I've seen it a lot in my coaching and myself. I've seen many, many nice guys have many or all of these things in common. Like I said, if you want help, if you want to be confident, if you want to be authentic, if you want healthy relationships, you want an awesome career that's true to your passions, these are the barriers you have to overcome. And I can help you do it. Just get in touch with me, dan at brojo.org. This is a solvable problem. Not quick, but simple. Hard work, courage, guidance, and you can be a different person within a year. person that you actually fucking like being and want to keep being. Now, if you don't want to work with me, I'm going to finish off by giving you some other resources that I recommend, just some books. No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. That's kind of like the Bible. I think everyone has to read that one. i start with that. Models by Mark Manson, particularly for those of you who are single and in the dating scene. Uh, how to date, date with honesty. Imposter Syndrome by Harold Hillman. There's a lot of books called Imposter Syndrome, but this is just the one I read. But this is particular for those of you where your nice guy issues are affecting your career. Radical Honesty by Brad Blanton. If you're not going to read my book, The Naked Truth, the next best one that I can think of is Radical Honesty by Brad Blanton. Happiness Trap by Russ Harris to address a lot of the beliefs you have around happiness and emotional suppression. And finally, there's a book called The Truth. I think it's called The Truth About Relationships uh, by Neil Strauss. Uh, to get an idea of, for those of you who struggle in personal and intimate relationships or are obsessed with sex, where what might be going on for you in there. Hope you found this helpful. Please share it around. Subscribe to the channel. I'll see you all next time. Cheers. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.